<laughs> All right, good evening. If you weren't here last week, we had a really uh, multicultural presentation. Uh, we had a good friend of mine that's from Ireland and another friend from Scotland. And then we had New York represented in the Northeast and Texas, and we were all over the map with our accents last week. But I went out to dinner with my uh, two, two guys that were here, and I asked Paul, I said, that scripture reading that you did, your, your accent was a little thick. Did you exaggerate? And he goes, I. <laughs> so we're going to let you know. I was sitting here thinking, man, I'm struggling, buddy. Um, now I feel better that he was putting a little bit of an accent. But um, uh, tonight we're going to listen to a little bit of a, um, we're going to have a video with Ray Vanderlaan. And most of y'all have probably heard Ray Vanderlaan. How many of y'all have heard Ray Vanderlaan before? You've seen some of his lessons. I'm going to play a a message from him that kind of ties in with this series. And I'm just going to plug it in and we're going to kind of uh, have a little bit of time afterwards to respond to it. This is actually one of my favorite videos uh, that I've seen um, from Ray Vanderlaan. It brought out something that I had never really considered about the area of the Decapolis, and so that's kind of where we're going to be um, looking and and focusing today uh, is just on the Decapolis. So let me start with a prayer, and we'll go into the video. Uh, My Father, I just, um, I'm I'm begging you for wisdom. Um, I pray, Father, that... um, there's so much in life that the difference between a monotony and something that is far more sacred is, is simply uh, our own wisdom. And uh, I pray, Father, that um, as a, a family, uh, we would sit down at your, the feet of your word. Uh, we would recognize you not simply as something we believe in, but we would recognize you as our king and our lord and our authority. And I pray, God, that this message of the Decapolis will be something that's not just for uh, educational purposes, but something that would reach deeper that, than that and, and to our hearts. I love you so much for uh, this message. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. text says, Jesus left Nazareth and went and lived in Capernaum. When he did his ministry in Capernaum, he was teaching and preaching the kingdom of God among a people who loved synagogue and Torah and loved to debate and discuss what the scripture said and what the scripture meant. They didn't always agree, but definitely the emphasis was how to be faithful to God as their king. Because where God is served, the kingdom comes. 
One day, Jesus said to the disciples, let's go to the other side. The other side has a very different king and a very different kingdom. I'm in the forum here in one of the Decapolis cities called Hippos by the Greeks. Here in this niche may have stood a statue of Caesar Augustus. If you had asked somebody in this town who's the king, I think the answer would have been, well, Caesar, of course. And whose kingdom is this? It's the kingdom of Caesar, Imperial Rome. What will happen when Jesus came across to the other side and entered the world, the kingdom of Caesar? place this morning that was one of the ten Decapolis cities. It was the smallest. The name of this city to the Greeks, to the Romans, was Hippos, which means horse. They thought, apparently, from above, if you look at this, it looks like a horse with its head down grazing, and you can see the swayed back of the horse. The Jews, maybe in derision, called it by an Aramaic name, Susita, which means little mare. In 337, 338, Alexander the Great came through here on his world conquest. His practice was to leave behind small groups of soldiers at various places to create little Greek cities, sort of like church planting, except his gospel was not the one we read in the book, but his gospel was one called the worldview of the Greeks or Hellenism. Now, we've started today here in what is known as the Roman Forum. Romans had a large public area for everything from their farmer's market to their flea market to the place where announcements would be made. Over there, what's called Kalibe, an outdoor shrine. A statue of Caesar stood in that uh, particular place and declared that Caesar is Lord and God. The Roman gospel had come here before Jesus got here. And in fact, the word gospel... The Greek word for gospel was an official word in the imperial Roman system. It was the word that said, good news, the emperor has ascended to the throne. He's Lord and God because his father ascended to the right hand of Zeus. Good news. And that good news, making him savior of the world, which is what his coins said, brought peace prosperity, security, all of these wonderful things, beautiful columns, 
flat paved streets, running water, beautiful statues. There was a worldview here, a way of life. We can say pagan, but that's a bit unfair because I think we need to unpack a little bit what we mean when we say Hellenism. I'm going to oversimplify, I understand, but the worldview of the Greeks is human-centered. Let me say a bit about what we mean by that. The mind is ultimately the source of truth. So what's true is what I can understand or logically determine or prove scientifically. So my mind becomes the standard, not revelation. What matters is what you accomplish in life. So we honor those who've done important things. Or we honor appearance. What's beautiful is good. Or your status as, as a council person of the city or the mayor of the city. That made you important. And on the basis of those things, accumulation, accomplishment, status, appearance, they assign value. So the more beautiful, the more you're worth. The more you've accomplished, the more value you have. The more you've accumulated, the more important you are. And how did you know who this town valued? Let me show you. This is who we value. This is who we are. So who stands here? The actor, a conquering general, an athlete, a famous singer, the senator, the soldier, the richest man in town who donated the fountain. Nothing wrong with honoring such people. They may be wonderful people. You think they've got a statue here? For the kid who gives his very best and never gets more than a C. For the Down Syndrome kid who volunteers his time after school at the hospital. There's a worldview here. Now, to those people in the triangle, that was not a biblical worldview. What's true is what God has revealed. This is the ultimate source of truth. So as those Jews from the other side, from here, to them, this is the other side, looked up here, they looked at this and said, this isn't the kingdom of God. This isn't about bringing in the marginalized. This is about pushing out the marginalized to put me on top. And so in a sense, you could say these people are outside of the Father's house. But as we learned early on, in God's way, the Father wants them back. And he'll go to great lengths to get them back. He'll pay their debts. He'll rescue them from trouble. He'll do whatever it takes. But Jesus takes that to the extreme. That's the whole purpose of being set apart, of being different. Not to separate you, but so that you can go to them and show them a better way, a different king. And so one day he said, let's go to the other side. Come, let's go see. 
They recently found this small theater here. It's really only two or three years been out of the soil, out of the debris, and a beautiful little Odeon, they call it, about a 500-seat theater. But our attention here now is not any longer the Hellenistic worldview of the Decapolis and the city of Susita, or Hippos, as the Greeks called it. Our attention now turns back to the sea. If you look way in the distance, Way far, there's a village on the hill. If you come down from the village, right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, that marks approximately the location of Capernaum. It's just to the left of that. That's where we left our story. Let's set it up again. Jesus had been living and teaching in Capernaum. One day, he came across in the synagogue a man with a demon. He spoke to the demon and told the demon to come out. The demon came out. Some in the crowd were unhappy and suggested that Jesus was driving out demons by the power of the evil one. He responded by saying, oh no, that's not true. And one of the reasons he gave is you can't plunder a strong man's house unless you tie up the strong man. Now hold that in your mind. In the Bible, the story describes an evil force in the universe. The dark side of the force, you might say, in a modern American way to say it. That is personified in a being we call Satan or the devil. However you look at him in that personalized way, his influence is what leads individuals or even communities and organizations to do things that are oppressive and evil. He has a kingdom. Many submit to his kingship. Jesus met one of them, bound that king, that strong man, and then took away something he had, the poor demon-possessed man, and set him free. Then Jesus said to his disciples sometime later, come, let's go to the other side. I hear him say, the strong man has another possession that I want. Let's go get him. Now, the disciples didn't know that. So into the boat they went, he fell asleep, and you remember the storm. You can almost picture that beautiful sea, but now rocked by waves. Jesus stills the storm, and they're amazed. And then they land and meet another possession of the strong man. Another man filled with the power of evil. Now, where was that? Well, the Bible doesn't say specifically. There's a textual uh, issue there where one version has one thing and one another. Some say Gadara, Gadarenes. Some say Gerasenes. Some say Gergesenes. Let me tell you what I think. 
If you look in the distance, there's a place where there's a hill right next to the sea, right up against the sea. Just beyond that is the area in Jewish tradition known as Gergesha, the home of the Gergeshites, one of the nations that Joshua and the Israelites had expelled from here. What makes that interesting is that the Hebrew for expel, to kick out, is exactly what's going to happen here to the demons. Jesus is going to expel them the way Joshua expelled the Canaanites. And I think the writer is, is thinking about that. That area is just beyond that hill. There's something else that argues that that's the most likely location for the story, and that is that hill is the only place on the eastern side of the sea where the steep bank goes all the way down to the sea, a distance of about a quarter of a mile. So if you had to pick by far the most likely uh, spot, place, for that story to happen, it's right at the foot of that hill. When the story happens, and we'll get there in a moment, the people from the town come out to see. Now the word there in the Greek for town is polis. Polis is a classic word for city, but not every city is a polis. Polis is a free city-state. By far, the nearest polis to that hill is this one, Susita. The next closest one is more than 25 miles away. It doesn't seem too likely that the story happens and people went 25 miles to tell the people in town who walked 25 miles back to see, and Jesus is still there. So let's pick up with what happens when Jesus, who had bound the strong man on the other side of the sea, lands at the beach, probably somewhere down there. I pick up in Mark. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any longer, not even with a chain. He had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, I'd like to have you picture that man, or man, Matthew says. And what a sorry, sad chaos their lives are in. They come from a community that values beauty, accomplishment, importance, and accumulation. And here's a man we learn in a bit is stark naked, uncut hair probably, foaming maybe, has nothing, breaks into a tomb and lives with the bones and the back, screams in the hills and cuts himself, making himself uglier by the day. In this town, there's nobody worth less than that man. But think about him for a moment from a Jewish point of view. 
unclean to the max. He's living in a tomb. One of the things God specifically says is if you touch dead bodies or things connected to dead bodies, you're unclean. He's in a tomb. He's naked. Violating the commandments about modesty. He's cut himself, oozing sores over and over again. God says if you're oozing a body fluid, touching it makes you unclean. And he's living in the land of the pagans. There is nobody in the Jewish world more unclean than that man. I don't think Jesus looked at him that way. I think Jesus saw in him one of the lost children God wanted back in his bait of. And he's willing to cross the sea and face the storm of the evil one. Take back what the strong man owned. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High God! Swear to God you won't torture me! For Jesus had been saying to him, Come out of him, you evil spirit. He knew Jesus' name. That demonic spirit did. And he uses it. Now I've thought about that for a long time. In the context, in the Jewish context, remember, names are more than simply labels. Names are identity, description, reputation, authority. To use someone's name or to give someone a name is to attempt to exert their authority. Sort of like saying, stop in the name of the law. You use the law, the name of the law, to accomplish something. I think that demon thought, I know Jesus' name. I'm going to use it, and I'm going to get him to leave me alone. I think he thought, if I can name him, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, don't torture me. It isn't, don't torture me. It's, don't torture me. In, your, in that name, I'm commanding you to leave me alone. And Jesus says, what's your name? And the man says, my name is Legion. For we are many. Stationed in this land were Roman legions, including the tenth, Fratensis. A legion shaped and put together by Caesar Augustus. In the civil war, which led to his being emperor and eventually being called son of God, that legion had done heroic things, especially in the battle 
at the Straits of Messina. In Latin, strait is fratensis. It is the legion who put Caesar Augustus on the throne. And their mascot? A pig! A boar with tusks! A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. The evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. The lake, the symbol of the abyss. And he put them in the pigs. You can say there's probably many things that are taught in that, I don't know. One certainly is he bound the strong man again. The demons are stuck in the pigs. And the man was set free. There's that beautiful passage in Isaiah where Isaiah speaks to Israel that's been living in sin. And Isaiah says, like a man says, don't throw out those grapes. There's still some juice in them. So God still sees value and he's going to preserve you and use you. I think Jesus looked over here and said, listen, you set apart people who are trying so hard to be holy. Don't stop. Those are my grapes over there. And there's still wine in those grapes. Maybe not much sometimes, but there's still something. And I want it. The man is free. And the text says, he went through the whole Decapolis. Come with me in your mind. Can you see him trotting up into the forum over here? Hey, guys! Ah, look out! No, no! I'm not the same! I've been set free! Let me tell you, please! Should have had a statue for him. Three PS's. Jesus gets back in the boat and leaves. He will come back on his way to the cross. The text says, believers met him. You think? One man whose life was at the bottom of the barrel who told his God story brought many to bow the knee to the God of Israel we'll ask him someday 
P.S. number two, what's this two men in Matthew and one in Mark? All kinds of, I don't know. I, I don't know, honestly. Some say, well, Matthew's talking about both. Mark only singles out one. I believe my Bible. But I see a lesson. It's my lesson, so I just use it as an illustration today. I read Matthew with that second man. Mark only talks about one. And I see Jesus saying, RVL, you used to live in a tomb too. Don't think that just because you came from a Christian home and went to a Christian school that you too didn't need the touch of the Messiah from Capernaum. And that's true of you too. You were the man in the tomb. Unclean. And he came from heaven into the shepherd's cave of your life and set you free. The PS number three is the one I want to leave with you. Let's go to the other side, said Jesus. They did. Jesus got out of the boat. The man came running to Jesus, fell at Jesus' feet. Jesus drove out the demons. The townspeople came running to see, and they found the man sitting at Jesus' feet. As Jesus was getting back into the boat, the man said, let me go with... You catch something? The disciples are never out of the boat. I can't tell you 100% they didn't get out, but certainly the writer does not see their involvement in this at all. And given that years later, Peter will need three visions, three times in the book of Acts. He'll need to be told, don't call unclean what I've made clean. You can go into a Gentile's house, it's okay. And he'll still have a confrontation because he won't eat with Gentiles. I wonder if those disciples sat in the boat saying, I'm not going to touch that unclean world. God said, touch no unclean thing, and I want to be godly. If we're going to be in the kingdom of the king, we are going to have to be willing to get out of the boat, in shepherd's caves, in decapolises, in places that do not hold our worldview, and we're going to need to love and embrace people who live in tombs. And they may be people that obviously are like that, or they may be the person you sit next to in church on Sunday. And I hear him asking today, will you go with me to the other side?
You guys to think about something. I'm just going to list off some cities to you. Gadara, Garassa, Scythopolis, Dion, Pella. Have you heard of any of those names before? Hippos, Rafana, Canatha, Damascus, Philadelphia. You probably picked up Damascus and Philadelphia somewhat. Ten, not towns, cities, major cities. They were right there, just across the lake, right there. We're talking about, we've been in this Bible all the time. If I mentioned Bethany, you know where Bethany is. Bethany was little more than a well, but we know where Bethany was. What is going on at the other side of the lake where we have 10 metropolises with hippodromes and theaters and everything else? All this time, right there. If we're in the Bible, all this time, those 10 cities have been right there across the lake. And they're only mentioned, the Decapolis by name is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. That's it. That's it. It's totally out of sight, out of mind. And Ray Vanderlaan brought up something. Why? What are these major cities doing right here? In fact, that's the land of Manasseh. That's their inheritance. We mean right here in our own land. And they're never even mentioned in Scripture because those people are trash. And they live in darkness. And they're sick. And they're not Jews. And they're not part of us. And they worship pigs. And pigs are there. In fact, it's likely that that's where the prodigal son went when it talks about him being with pigs. I loved it that he said something here. How about this? I never picked up on this. It doesn't appear from the text. I looked at all three accounts of it. It doesn't appear that the disciples ever got out of the boat. Now, now how about this, though? A naked man with chains hanging off his wrist, screaming constantly, comes running down. I wouldn't get out of the boat either. Jesus, this is you. Go take care of this guy. Going across this lake and what you can't help, and I, I make fun of Ray Vanderlaan a little bit, even though I love him because he gets very dramatic. Um, but he lives in tombs. No one could bind him with chains. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, he never stopped crying. He never stopped cutting himself. He had worn no clothes. He was kept under guard, it says in Luke's account, and he was driven to solitary places. This is this man that lives without hope. Have you ever seen somebody in your life, or maybe it's you, that you know what it is where Satan has a stronghold? He has a fortress. And this is his territory. This is his kingdom. Remember when Jesus was, was tempting, um, and when Satan was tempting Christ, he said, bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. There's this battle going on between the, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness in Scripture. You see this. And Christ essentially says, I'm coming to invade your kingdom. I want to tell you what's, what I believe is really happening in the story, the, in the, the, the depth of this story, and then kind of bring it to us just real quickly. Um, I believe that as in most of Jesus' miracles, in most of the accounts, this man represents something. And when he comes to him, we get two different things. Constantly the pigs beg him. I'm, the pigs beg him. They do. By the way, um, I looked up today. You're going to love this. Do you know what a... a uh, a large number of um, boars is called a singular. Now that's weird. Look it up. I'm not right. It's called a singular. So you can tell somebody that a singular, only a singular ran into the lake. Um, sorry, that was stupid. <laughs> Look at all the times the demons beg Jesus. 
the demons begged Jesus not to send him out of the area. Except in Luke's account, it says this, don't send us into the abyss. Now, that's how I remembered the story. But in Mark's story, it says, don't send us out of the region. Don't send us out of the area. So what are they saying? This is our territory, Christ. Go back to Israel. I have this land. I have this people. And look what represents it. Death, the tombs. Cutting himself. Just, I have these people subdued. Go back to your home. This is my kingdom. And Christ sends them into a herd of swine, which represents their God and represents what in the Old Testament? Uncleanness. Sends them into the swine, and I don't think it's, it's a coincidence that the swine rush down into the abyss, the sea. Where, because what happens when you leave, go into the ocean? You left the region. Symbolic that my kingdom has come to this land. I'm planting a flag. This, this man represents something. This, this is my territory. And I'm coming to conquer it. And that's why when the man, look at all these, I, I said two of the times where they beg him, the demons beg Jesus to allow him to go on the pigs. The man begs Jesus to allow him to go with him. This is a dark land. Let me go back with you. And Jesus says, no, you stay here. And he expands this kingdom in this place. I'm curious what it means for you. I was thinking about this verse today, just two verses I want to share with you. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says later in, in uh, Matthew chapter 10 um, that um, from, the, from the days of John the Baptist, it's now, now the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing. There's this idea of the kingdom advancing in his ministry. And then he says this, and Paul says this in Colossians, and this is the verse that's been on my mind today. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So I want you to think about who in your life, in your prayer life, in your circles, it represents the other side, represents the kingdom of darkness. Somebody, Satan has a stronghold, has a grip, won't let go when it seems impossible. There is no breaking this. That is his territory. Uh, I think it's important that uh, I was just like, what a message there is here that it was just across the lake, 10 major cities, nobody knows those cities' names because they are Satan's territory. Christ has this message, no, that's mine too. What is the other side of the lake? What is it that we don't lift up our eyes and see sometimes? You know, what's right there in front of us? I learned a lesson when I was in youth ministry in Austin. I went from a youth group that had, I, I, would, I would say, about 35 or 40 kids in it. We had no black students. We had no Hispanics. It was a white youth group. Then I went to a youth group that we had a little over 100 kids. And we had about four black students. And we went to area-wides. And it was all white. And I'm in the city of Austin. And I finally got with the youth ministers. And I said, what's going on? And I realized that we had racially divided the churches in the city of Boston to a serious degree. We quit and we started going and we started really working to deliberately integrate and think, how is it that we did not see? How is it that we did not see this right here in front of us that we have divides happening and we're not lifting up our eyes to see what's happening? 
It happened one day, I was at church here, and I'm going to share a personal story with you, and I hope I don't offend anybody this, so please listen to what I'm saying, because it was very personal to me. Um, Bob has, boy, Bob is like a bull in a china shop, man. Bob is an amazing man, and he has touched my life and a lot of lives, but man, he is bold. And he'll get up in front of the homeless downtown, downtown, we're in Fort Collins, down there. And he'll say things like, man, I'm tougher than a $2 steak, man. Don't mess with me. You know, that's how he preaches. You know, he'll go. And I've had to fill in for him before, and I don't say that. (laughs) But powerful ministry and crazy things happening, and people are brought to Christ, and people struggling with drugs, and we battle when Taryn has been giving herself to this, and it's powerful. And as difficult as this ministry is, here's what's happening down in that park. You'll come, and you will see... Upper, uh, how many have we had, John? I mean, we've had, we've had 150 plus people. And I'm seeing people share testimonies. I'm seeing people share gospels. I'm people seeing praising God. People even putting up signs calling church for the homeless. This is what's happening. Then I was in a class here on a Sunday morning. And I'm, 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 I don't, I'm not saying this to hurt anybody. I'm just saying this is kind of the obliviousness that can happen. I'm sitting in a class and people were upset that the church wasn't out doing more. And people were raising their hands saying, why don't we have tents and parks? And I was like, what? Why aren't we out feeding them? Why aren't we doing And there were all these things that they were upset that we weren't doing. And I was like, I'm, I'm not, it's probably my fault. Do I need to say it again? But part of me wonders, and I'm, 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 I want, please show me grace in how I say this, because I don't say things the right way. But part of me wonders if we like to talk. But sometimes it's just talk. And, and, and I'm not saying that to, uh, do we really mean it? You know, sometimes we talk about, man, if we just had this opportunity, if we were just doing this, and then the opportunity opens, and then we all just, I, it was good for a Sunday morning class. I didn't mean put me out there where it smells like pot. I, that's, do you hear what I'm saying? Show me some grace. Sometimes we're not lifting up our eyes to the other side of the lake, and it's right there in front of us. It's right there. And I'm not saying that our church, everybody, I'm not giving a shame message. We need to be there. Listen, I have not been there a whole lot at all recently, okay? That's not what I'm doing. But I am saying this. If God has a calling for your life as an individual, it is not your responsibility or mine to look it up at somebody else and say, why aren't you doing it? That's God's calling for you. And it is cowardice for me to look up at somebody else and say, why aren't you doing what I was called to do? I think that's the message of 1 Corinthians 14. Um, Ooh, I'm not supposed to preach on Wednesdays. I got confused. (laughs) Show me grace. (laughs) I love you guys for how much grace y'all show. Uh, Let's pray. God, I just, uh, I want to just come before you. And um, I don't know. I'm just, I pray, Father, that you would prepare our minds for action that we would be people of action. God, that we would look up and that we would see where we have divides and we have problems and we have barriers and we have places where maybe we could be going and maybe Jesus is going, but we're not really following the way we're supposed to be. Or like Ray Vanderlis said, we're not getting out of the boat when he gets there. And I just pray, Father, that for our body and our congregation and our people, especially those in this room that are leaders, um, I pray, Father, that you would help us see where Jesus is going. 
Help us to not miss a de- something as crazy, a big as the Decapolis, right on the other side of the lake, and, and, and just be oblivious to it. Um, guard us from those bubbles and help us to understand that what the world might call the kingdom of Satan and that what we might call the kingdom of Satan, um, you have the power to say that that's not his kingdom anymore. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to claim kingdoms that we think are inaccessible. I pray that you do that here in Fort Collins, and I pray that you do it in hearts of people we love. It's in Christ's name. Amen.